it was a struggle because, you know, I can talk about stories in the Bible all day long, but explainings, explaining, I'm no good at explaining. So, so anyway, but there are people that are really good at explaining, and here's one of them. And so if what, a lot of what I say sounds like this person here, Chuck Swindoll, he's real plain. He, plains, he plain explains. He explains very it's because it is Chuck Swindoll. If I sound like him, it's because it is him, okay? I mean, I just plagiarized like mad. <laughs> so, because he was so good. Golly, he was so good. I wish I could just stand here and read out of this book. <laughs> but we're not going to do that. All right, let me pray. Let me pray. Father God, um, these words must have meaning to us. They really had meaning to the Hebrew Christians. But what do they mean to us? I pray you'll bring it home. Bring them home. Help us, Father. Let us enter into your truth because we need you so desperately. Every day we need you. <sighs> bring us close to you. We want to do what this Hebrews book says. It says draw near. That's what we want. Do this through us today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. When I was a girl, my mother used to say, I hope I'm saved. She hopes she's saved. You know, she didn't know. She wasn't certain. And when I was a girl and I heard her say that, it would just make me feel really anxious inside. You know, because I thought, well, why? <laughs> that perspective, it was not a place of rest. I don't know if you had adults in your life that said things like that and it just kind of threw you back a little bit. Well, somehow my mom was bound by the insecurity of elements of that old Mosaic covenant. The good girls are saved. The bad ones aren't. If you're good, you go to heaven. If you're bad, you don't. So... Was she good enough? Good enough to be saved? She didn't know. Her faith was constrained. Her faith was not only constrained by her doubt, it was constrained by her poor theology. And um, Bob and I took this class one summer, a couple summers ago, taught by George Guthrie from Regent College, and he did it on Hebrews. And he said something that I actually wrote in the cover of the book because it was just so good and it's so true and it's playing out. It certainly was playing out in my mom's life. He said this. He said, our perseverance in the Christian faith is in direct proportion to the clarity with which we see who Jesus is and what he's accomplished on our behalf. And that was certainly true of the Hebrew Christians that this letter was written to. And for that reason, I, I think it might be a good idea if we just remind ourselves, why was this letter written in the first place? Those letters were written for a reason. And don't you know they were the writers of the letters, whether it was Peter or Paul, and in this case, we all know, um, they were talking about direct issues of that particular body that particular part of the body of Christ, those people. Um, 
So imagine, if you will, a prison door that's been unlocked, and it's standing open. And when you look through the doorway, you see the prisoner sitting inside. And the prisoner might look confused or maybe, maybe frightened. The, pris- the door is open. The prisoner can go free. But somehow, they're paralyzed by some sort of internal barrier or some kind of an intimidation. And that's how I imagine some of these Jewish Christian believers felt about Judaism. Judaism, which, whose roots are the Old Covenant, the Old Mosaic Covenant. And we mustn't forget this very important part. Every aspect of their life in community and how they lived before God and how they lived with each other was dictated by that Old Covenant and its elements and, and, and everything that went with it. Their faith was built on those elements. Those were the building blocks, the foundation. Moses, the high priest, the sacrificial system of atonement. Uh, and now they find themselves under persecution great persecution, but they don't even have the safety net of their Jewish culture and community, and they're desperate for reassurance that this departure from Judaism was not a fatal mistake, and some of them are already turning back to participate in the rites and rituals that defined the alignment of their faith with the old covenant, the covenant that God made with Moses in the people of Israel, in which obedience was met with blessing and reward, and disobedience was met with wrath and punishment and ultimately destruction and death. And you know, you've heard the words, choose you this day whom you will serve. But it was based on that, these two choices. So this author of Hebrews is attempting to reassure these probably at this time, I'm going to say this, I don't know, but a fledgling group of Christians, in Hebrew Christians, in vital, life-giving, vital, and strategic ways, strategic, going to the building blocks and looking at them. And he does it by examining those building blocks of their faith and showing them how to realign them, to realign them with Christ as the cornerstone. Do you all understand about cornerstones? Yeah, have you seen the one that we have out here? It's got the date of when this. It doesn't mean that, the cornerstone doesn't mean that everything is on top, although eventually it is. The cornerstone is like all the foundational blocks of the building are aligned with it. And so all the foundational blocks of the building of their faith had been aligned with Moses and the Old Covenant and the Mosaic Covenant. And now... They're trying to get them realigned with Christ. So that's why this author is going there, okay? He's looking at each one of those foundational stones, and he's realigning them with Christ, their cornerstone. Everything that depended on the old sacrificial system had to be realigned as the beginning of a secure foundation. So last week, Jen Wilkins, 
she left us with this really great picture of Jesus as our mediator of God's new covenant. And she said, she told us how these large ships, remember this? In the Mediterranean Sea would have to wait until the weather calmed down before they could enter a safe harbor. And so the harbor would have large rocks where they could securely, where they could uh, securely place their anchor to hold their ship in place until it could enter the safe harbor. The Mediterranean Sea's bottom was sandy, and therefore it was difficult, if not impossible, to safely weigh anchor and to hold the ship secure. It would just kind of float off. <laughs> so a smaller ship, a smaller boat or whatever, would take their anchor, or yeah, anchor, I'm assuming one, um, and would go in first. It'd go into the harbor first. And, uh, and they would take the anchor, which is still attached to the, the large ship, and they would secure it in the rocks of the harbor. And until the sea had calmed, and then the large ship would come in afterwards, and it would be guided by the anchor, and it would be guided, and it would be safely held in place until that time. And that's a picture of our, this, and this is what Jen said. She said that's a picture of our hope in Christ, which, because he's already gone before us. He's already there. And our scripture today tells us he's seated. He's there. He's our anchor. And he's holding us and drawing us in to this safe harbor. This hope, it's the, the anchor is the hope that we have in Christ. And it's strong, and it's trustworthy, and it anchors our souls. And eventually, it well, it does now. It leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. And think of that safe harbor. Jesus has already gone there. And the last sentence of that chapter says, He, talking about Jesus, has become our eternal high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Well, you're like, order of Melchizedek. And that's where we're going to go today. <laughs> we're going to talk about that phrase. All right, so, well, when I go shopping at the grocery store, sometimes I take time to read the ingredients and the nutrition on the outside of the box. Why do I do that? Well, because I want to choose the product that is the best for my purposes, and so I compare, compare, looking. And this author of the Hebrew letters, he's going to make three comparisons one of the comparisons is how two things are alike. And the other com two comparisons are how two things are different. Uh, and the first comparison he does is he compares Melchizedek, this ancient priest mentioned in one verse, maybe two, in the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 14, verse 18 primarily, and Jesus, and there's a really important reason why he does this. Uh, and then, then he's going to move on from there, and he's going to compare Jesus' priesthood with the Levitical priesthood, but he's going to contrast those two, how they're not alike. The first one, how they are alike. The second one, how they're not alike. And finally, he's going to contrast the Old Covenant with the New Covenant. So we begin the first of these comparisons, that of Melchizedek and Jesus. 
And it's hinged on that last sentence, he has become our eternal high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And we must begin with who is Melchizedek. He's barely mentioned in the Bible. He first appears in a few verses in Genesis 14, and, and, he, and, and it's in this context. Abraham and his warriors had rescued Abraham's nephew Lot from captivity from the con that was uh, that was, that came about by the confederacy of King Kedolaomer and his allies. There are like five of them, five kings, and and Abraham uh, succeeded. He succeeded in getting his nephew out of captivity and defeating these five kings and and I say Abraham it was Abram and his warriors and um, and when he comes back the king of Solomon or I'm sorry the king of Sodom comes to meet him because remember Lot used to live there he lived in Sodom so the king comes out but this is what the verses say there verse 18 19 20 of this chapter and it says this and Melchizedek the king of Salem and a priest of God most high brought Abram some bread and wine. Melchizedek blessed Abram with this blessing. Blessed be Abraham by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has defeated your enemies for you. And then Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of all the good that he had recovered. And I thought that was really cool because I didn't know this, but John MacArthur, I listened to him, and he said, he said that any time there was something like that that happened, they would lay out all the booty, you know, all their stuff before the God and then lift off 10% of it and, and sacrifice, you know, give that, and then the rest of it was theirs. Well, Abraham, or Abram did give him the 10%, gave it to Melchizedek, who represented Abram's God, who was, you know, the mediator there, um, the priest, sorry. And, um, and then the king of Sodom, and what's interesting about him, he said, now you can take all the rest of it. And Abraham's like, or Abram was like, no, because if I do that, you will think that I... I have done this. And he goes, no, I didn't do this. This, this is an act of my God. And so and you take it, and, uh, and uh, we're just going to take what my men ate. They needed food. They ate. That's all, we're, that's all that we will keep. The rest of it goes back to you guys, to all of you. So I didn't have to say that, but I just thought that was interesting. <laughs> so the first comparison of the way that they are alike is between Melchizedek, this mysterious priest, and Christ. And it has in this passage, and I'm not going to read it to you. I'm hoping you will read it in your small groups. has four points, four things. And this, is, this connection will make sense later. So the thing that he says, the author says, he says that both Melchizedek and Jesus are kings and priests. He says that Melchizedek is the king of Salem, which will one day be called Jerusalem. And similarly, Jesus is king, but not only of Jerusalem, but of Israel, the world, and all creation. And Melchizedek was also priest of God Most High. Jesus is our high priest who makes intercession for us. 
What Melchizedek is in the narrative, Jesus is, is in his nature. The story, and they don't tell you everything about Melchizedek. They tell you some things about him. But in Christ, he is the, he, his nature is everything. He is the king. He is the priest. There are parallels between the name Melchizedek and Salem on the one hand, this is the second point, and Christ's work as king on the other. The author of Hebrews notes that the name Melchizedek seems to point forward in a way to Jesus. They say he foreshadows Christ. The name comes from two Hebrew words, Melech, which means king, and Tzedek, which means righteousness. And the name Salem is related to the word shalom, as we've already as um, we've already heard, meaning peace. So together, the name and title of this mysterious figure in Genesis 14 is the King of Righteousness, the King of Peace. But again, what Melchizedek is in that narrative, Jesus is in his nature. He is righteousness incarnate. He is the embodiment of peace. How is that? Peace with God. The war between us and God is over. We are at peace with God in Christ. I love that. Third, Melchizedek would have been presented in the text with impressive credentials and prestigious pedigree. I mean, come on, how many genealogies have we read in the Bible, right? It's their pedigree. Yeah, that's what... <laughs> but no, <laughs> the scant historical record in Genesis, it doesn't make any mention of his parentage or his ancestry or his progeny, his birth or his death. He simply appears as if out of nowhere. And he brings out bread and wine and pronounces a blessing over Abraham, who responds by giving him a tenth of the spoils of his recent battle. So again, what Melchizedek is in the story, Jesus is in his nature. Without Christ is without any actual beginning or end. He is eternal. He's seated at the right hand of God. He is our eternal priest, always making intercession for us. That's going to play out and be real important very soon in our discussion. So this is how the author of Hebrews argues. Melchizedek foreshadowed the coming of the Son of God, and as such... David, a thousand years later, in Psalm 110.4, says this about the Messiah, about the future Messiah. He says, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Like, not according to the order of Aaron and the Levites. No, according to the order of Melchizedek, the eternal the no beginning, no end, the righteous, the peace, the king and priest. And what Melchizedek was in the narrative, the Messiah is in his nature. Jesus is, and I can't say it enough times, I'm going to say it again, king, 
righteousness and peace incarnate, eternal in his deity, and ever able, and this is the best part, to serve as high priest in heaven for us, always. So having established this Melchizedek and Jesus connection, they're of the same order of heavenly priesthood. The author now takes the careful step in his argument to show toward demonstrating the superiority of Christ as the fulfillment of Old Testament expectations. He doesn't nullify that old covenant. He fulfills it. He he demonstrated uh, that Melchizedek himself was, this is the author, greater than Abraham, the founding father of the Hebrew people, and the original recipient of the covenant. And this is this is, these are the points of that. When Abram sees Melchizedek after winning the battle, this is the first one, against his enemies, he tied the, tithed the spoils to Melchizedek. And the author points out that in the law of Moses, the Levitical priesthood received tithes from the people of Israel, that is, the descendants of Abraham. However, those Levites were still in the genetic, comp- when this happened, in the genetic composition of their ancestor Abraham. So those future Levitical priests were, in essence, also paying a tithe to Melchizedek, who foreshadowed Christ. So it boiled down to their perspective. I mean, what it was, it was their perspective. And did any of you get to hear Jen talk about this? Because I didn't. I thought it was so funny. Because she told this funny story about how her children, uh, her daughters, (laughs) thought that... um, that uh, when their mom had their older brother, that they were in, that they, the two sisters, were in one of her mother's legs and in her other mother's, the other leg. That that's where they were. And surprisingly enough, because they didn't know what we know now about genetics and DNA and all that, back then that's kind of the perspective that these these uh, Hebrew Christians that everybody had, and it was about how, uh, because all the future ancestors were in the loins of their, you know, of their ancestors. All the future descendants were in the loins, and so, um, and so that was, so this is the point then, he says, based upon that, that Moses, I'm sorry, not Moses, Melchizedek was superior to Abram, and you know, or Abraham, and you know, they didn't think anybody was superior to Abraham. He was like the biggest dog they had in the, in the game. And so um, uh, that Melchizedek was superior to Abraham because Abraham paid a tithe to him, and Melchizedek blessed Abraham, um, he was superior to him. And the Levitical priests, next point, were in Abraham, right? And so Melchizedek is greater than the Levitical priests because the Messiah's priesthood, uh, because, um, let me not go away from that yet, Um, he's greater than the Levitical priests because they tithed to him through their ancestor Abraham. Does that make sense? (gasps) Good. It sounds cray-cray to me, but, you know, that's the point he's making. And it's because they need this point. They need to hear these words. Therefore, because the Messiah's priesthood is in the order of Melchizedek, who is greater than Abraham, 
the Messiah's priesthood is greater than the priesthood of the Levites under the law of Moses. So now we're going to compare those two priesthoods, okay? But we're going to contrast them. And this all begins at verse 21 of chapter 7. All right. So the Levitical priests, verse 21, held their offices because of their physical descent, their genealogy, but not by divine truth. But Jesus was established with the divine oath of God in Psalm 110, verse 4, where God says, The Lord has taken an oath and will not break his vow. You, Messiah, are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. You don't have a beginning. You don't have an end. Your priesthood never, ever ends because it's in me. Verse 22, the Levitical priests were temporary custodians of an inferior covenant that would eventually expire. They could only be priests until, I think, age 50, and then they retired and eventually died, and their priesthood was over. But Jesus, in verse 22, says that he was the personal guarantee of a better covenant that could never expire. And a guarantor in this definition is a person who bears the risk of another person's investment or debt, like my dad, you know, in this case. Uh, he co-signed the loan on my first car. If I reneged on that debt, my dad would pay in my place. My dad would have paid it. And of course, of course, we've reneged on our debt. Jesus has paid it all, right? And in verse 23, the Levitical priest's ministry was temporary because death prevented them from continuing. And in verse 24, but Jesus, his high priestly ministry is permanent because he conquered death and he lives forever. In verse 25, the Levitical priest's ministry could only provide a temporary fellowship with God under the old covenant, but not eternal salvation. And verse 25, Jesus' ministry, this is really big for us, of heavenly intercession enables him to provide eternal salvation to those who come to God through him. Answers my mom's question, right? Am I saved? I hope I am. And finally, in chapter 8, he compares the covenants. And uh, in reassuring the Jewish believers that, that their decision to participate in the new covenant and the new life of Christ, he compares the new covenant of Christ with the old Mosaic covenant that Christ fulfilled. So this is what Jeremiah, chapter 31, I think it's verses 34 to, or 32 to 34, says. And this was in Hebrews chapter 8. It's the... If the first covenant had been faultless, meaning if it was able to, if it was able to do what God hoped, was able to do that, then there would have been no need for a second covenant to replace it. But when God found fault with the people, he said, the day is coming, says the Lord. This is quote from Jeremiah. When I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah, and this covenant will not be 
like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt. They didn't remain faithful to my covenant. So I turned my back on them, says the Lord. But this is the new covenant I will make with my people of Israel on that day, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds, and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people, and they will not need to teach their neighbors, nor will they need to teach their relatives, saying, you should know the Lord, for everyone from the least to the greatest will already know me, and I will forgive their wickedness and I will never again remember their sins. When God speaks of a new covenant, it means that he's made the first one obsolete. It's now out of date and will soon disappear. And uh, Jen, uh, she related this to her telephone. And it was funny that she did that because I was thinking about my telephone. I'd just gotten a new phone and I'd shoved the old one in the drawer. And uh, I was thinking, you know, why? And, and then I started thinking about telephones that I had. And there was, when I was a child, ours was hanging on the, the wall of the kitchen. And you could only take that phone as far as the cord, right? So we would sit in the kitchen on the stool to talk on the phone. And anyway, insufficient, insufficient. Now we walk around with them. The old covenant was insufficient for God's purposes. What is that purpose? He wanted to give us eternity eternal salvation and perfect righteousness and we can never have that but that he puts it in us through Christ the old testament this is what it meant it meant external lists of rules it meant distance from god and fear of his punishment it meant never knowing if you'd transgressed and that's why you had to Sacrifice again and again and again. Never certain, like my mom, never certain of his forgiveness. And messing up and failing, because that meant doom. God was remote. God was unapproachable. They never got to go into the, the Holy of Holies. They never got to come into his presence. They always had somebody that went in before them. So what are those signs of the Old Covenant? The broken bodies of animals broken again and again and their blood poured out continually again and again because the people sinning again and again I can't even imagine what that temple was like because they were doing it 24 7 they were sacrificing these animals I can't imagine the smell or the look or anything it's just amazing well <clears throat> compare that now or rather contrast that now with the new covenant. This is what God has given us in Christ. This is our new covenant, internal motivation. It's not all rules and regulations and rites and rituals and everything. It's a righteousness that's inside. It's a close relationship with God. Draw near. Because guess what? You're one of his family members now. You can run right in to his throne room. It's no more fear or condemnation when you mess up. Jesus has paid it all. Do we mess up? Yes. Do we want to? No. But we've got the two natures. Remember, we learned that in Romans last semester. Um, it is uh, uh, 
assurance and, con- and confidence. I wish my mom didn't have to say, I hope I'm saved. I wish that she believed and had that assurance and confidence that she was forgiven forever. You're forgiven forever. And she was the recipient of his mercy. We're under the mercy of God. (laughs) We can't earn that. So what are the signs of the new covenant? Jesus' body broken once. His blood spilled one time, one time, sufficient. And we celebrate that every Sunday. I love it when our pastor breaks the bread because you know what? That's the body. You remember how this happened in Genesis uh, 15? Try to call this, or 16, call it to mind. The animal was put one piece over here, one piece over here. The blood was poured out. And then Abraham went into a deep sleep, and he saw God walk through the pieces and come to him. Did Abraham walk towards God? No. No. It was one way. It was Christ. His blood poured out, coming to us. And old covenant, two-way. New covenant, Christ, all the way, one One sacrifice, sufficient, a sufficient sacrifice, and the sign of our sufficient new covenant with God, whereby everything that was external becomes internal, and by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit of God, his righteousness is imputed to us. And now, his laws are here, and they're here in our mind and our heart. And we don't need to teach them. We don't need to tell each other. You need to know, because we know him. And God forgives us forever. Much, much better covenant. And sealed with the blood of our righteous God, king and high priest, once and for all. Now, my daughter belongs to a rock climbing club at UNC Chapel Hill. (laughs) Have you guys ever done rock climbing? Has anybody ever? (laughs) Rock climbing. It's you go on this wall and you, anyway. Well, she climbs up, but she doesn't hardly ever look down. Because if you've ever done that rock climbing stuff, I mean, it is so scary to look down. Why? Because, because it, the distance, <laughs> and so, but the thing that, that she has, she has this confidence because she's secure because she's got a harness on, and she's got these ropes that hold her securely, and the person that's holding the ropes or belaying her, these things are guaranteeing her security. Well, these believers are looking behind them. Some of them are looking behind them, and they're going, hmm, I might want to go back to Egypt here. Come on, leeks and onions and, you know, come on. This part's hard. This, this is hard, and it's really scary. But it's way, way down. And our thing that we need to know is Jesus is already there, and he's before us. So we look up, and he's peering over the edge of the summit, but he's holding our ropes. And we are working today in all that we've discussed to discover just how he's 
holding our ropes and pulling us up and assuring our success. We are going to reach the top. We already have reached the top, but we're on a process, in the process of reaching the top as well. So a couple weeks ago, I attended the memorial service for Joe Oldham, a beloved Blacknell saint. Man, she was one of the teachers here at Women's Bible Society. She was like the main one back in the day. And Tim Penniger sang a song that we love to sing called Be Ye Glad. You know it? Yeah. Well, when I told you about that picture of the prison door being opened and the prisoner just sitting there, unable or unwilling to walk out, it made me think about the song. And I want you to remember that in that prison, it was those elements of the old covenant that they had had confidence in. So they like felt secure by it, but it wasn't secure. So now here's some of the, the words of this um, song, and, and uh, it's so poetic that you might have trouble understanding it, but I'm going to like explain that. So it says, Now, from your dungeon, a rumor is stirring. From your cell, you've heard it again and again, but this time, The cell keys are turning, and outside there are faces of friends. And I kind of thought of, like, this body of believers. Some of them are outside the prison. They're outside the prison of the Mosaic Covenant. And they're they're doing this, like, come on, come on. Don't sit there. Though your body lay weary from wasting in that position of death, and your eyes show the sorrow they had. Oh, the love, the love of Christ that your heart is now tasting. It's opened that door. It's opened that gate. Be ye glad. Every debt that you've ever had has been paid up in full by the grace of the Lord. Be ye glad. Be ye glad. You say it. Be ye glad. The prison door is fully opened. Walk out. He will hold you fast. You won't fall. He guarantees it. Let's pray. Father God, help my sisters, and oh, help me too. Please help us to cling to the foundation of our faith and be aligned with the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. And please help us to turn our back on All of the times in our head when we said, I haven't been good. I haven't been good enough. No, no, we never good enough. Don't you know that? God, you told us that. You're never good enough. But I am all the righteousness that your soul needs. So, Father, thank you. What can we say? But thank you. You have made us glad. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.